0: Well, our first session this morning is um, <clears throat> this one: an Old Testament wisdom, uh, an introduction. The wisdom books in the Bible um, are perhaps the uh, most neglected uh, books of the Bible. Um, you might read some Bible overviews, in fact, that don't mention them at all, as if they weren't there at all, uh, and even some Bible teachers who uh, will marginalise them uh, to some extent. Uh, But actually, I hope we'll find, uh, even this morning as we sort of dip into them, that these are very, very wonderful books, and this is wonderful teaching. They're surprising, uh, they're stimulating, and uh, they are indeed useful uh, for for living. Now, there's a limit to what we can do in uh, one hour, and what we can cover in one hour, but our aim this morning, really, is to give you a taste of what this literature is all about, and uh, what it's good for, and to give you uh, a framework for thinking about this kind of literature and some tools for reading this kind of literature. And um, that'll hopefully help you as you prepare studies uh, throughout this coming term. Um, uh, just to say, we've got quite a lot of material to, to cover in this one hour. Um, if any of it sticks, that's good. Don't worry if it, if, if it feels all a bit much. But if any of it sticks, that'll be good and that'll be helpful um, for you over the coming term. And what we're planning to do is cover these uh, four areas. Uh, what is Wisdom. Uh, so sort of tracking that down at the beginning uh, what 's the purpose of the biblical wisdom? What is it supposed to, what is God intending to do through it um, as we uh, engage with it uh, in the Bible uh, today? Um, how wisdom works, um, how it changes us, how it goes about changing us, and then finally, wisdom and the Christian, thinking about this Old Testament wisdom literature uh, from a Christian perspective in the light um, of Jesus Christ. Um, and I'm going to be uh, topping and telling this with, with uh, Rich Horse, and he's going to uh, start with this first session. What is, what is wisdom?
1: Right. Thanks, Ben. Okay, so we're going to look at what is wisdom, okay? It's what wise people do. Now, classically, the books in the Bible that we would consider to cover the genre of wisdom books are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Psalms, and the Song of Songs. Though some biblical scholars would also argue there are other books and other elements in the Bible. So, for example, the Epistle to James is probably also wisdom literature. There are bits of Matthew. But classically, what we're looking at this morning are these books of the Old Testament. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is a skill of living. It's saying the right thing. It's doing the right thing. Now, as Ted Bovis used to say to Spike, timing is everything. Okay? It's not simply a matter of being able to say the right thing or to do the right thing. You need to do it at the right time. How many people have been asked, is my bum big in this? Now, we know what the right answer might be, but it might not be the right time to say it. Okay, that requires wisdom. Okay, now, we talk about IQ, being intelligence and amassing knowledge. There's also what we call EQ, an emotional quotient. Okay, that's the ability to be able to um, know about yourself and to know about other people and how to interact. And people with a high EQ are more likely to succeed in a job, get on in life, and do better, okay, than people. So it's never simply about amassing knowledge, Okay, it's not a case of just learning all the Proverbs off by heart, and that will make us wise. You can know the Scriptures back to front, but it's a matter of applying them. That is what makes us wise. Now, here's a good example. A loud and cheerful greeting. Now, who doesn't mind a loud and cheerful greeting? Okay, you think, yay, a loud and cheerful greeting, I'll go around. That will make people happy. There's a time and a place for everything. And in Proverbs it says, early in the morning will be taken as a curse. And anybody that's got children know, hello, is anybody there? At six o'clock in the morning is a curse. So, what is wisdom? Wisdom is doing the right thing at the right time. But what's the right thing? The right thing is the godly thing. Okay, it's being having the mind of God. What would God do in this situation? Now, how do we do the godly thing? Doing the godly thing is fearing God. And we see that refrain, we've all heard, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And this came as a bit of a bolt out of the blue while I was preparing this, but I, the more I thought about this, it's not simply going around trembling and thinking that if I fear God lots, I'll somehow amass some knowledge to live a better life if we live with this fear this awe of God before us our decisions will be godly decisions and I think the reason I make so many bad decisions that I do the wrong things is because I don't live with the fear of God before me, I don't obey God, I don't live as if he is there and I think we just kind of compartmentalise things and I think You know, if we meditate on this scripture, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. We will attain wisdom. Now, we need to think about wisdom. The wisdom books were written a long time ago in ancient times. And we live now in the 21st century. Okay? So there's an original audience with their worldview, and there's us today with our worldview. So, for example... You know, I interpret everything, okay, through an authority of science, more or less. Okay, everything I sort of come up with, I think about psychologically or the sociological or the scientific world, and that's what, how we think about things in terms. Everything's very neutral. Everything's very, we're able to work these things out. Okay, it's it's everything out there, and I, you know, I'm looking and viewing at the world out there through these these frames of reference. Not so with the ancients. They were very much in the world that they were in. And it was a much more personal and holistic, a non-scientific approach to everything. Okay, then, we run our lives by clocks and calendars. Okay, everything runs like that. That's not a bad thing. But the way the ancients saw it is these are the rhythms and patterns of life that just trundle along. Okay, it's not the world out there for them, Okay, it's this kind of I-thou relationship with everything around them. You know, we think about the problem of death as a pursuit of medicine and science and those kind of things and trying to put off death as long as we possibly can. Whereas the way that the ancients viewed death is they looked at it through its more figurative language that they used, the chaos, the seas. Things like Leviathan that we see in Job the ways that they had to deal with those kind of things. So they were much more connected with everything else around them rather than seeing it more as an existential type of thing. So for the ancients, for the, for the wisdom writers, it's wisdom, not science. is the key to unlocking the living structures and the order in creation. It's through living a godly life that they're able to unlock these things and work out how everything interacts. Wisdom is the key to a well-lived life. So they would see gods and kings, people and the creation order all in the same breath. Whereas we tend to sort of put, you know, gods, theology, kings, politics, people, that might be sociology, wisdom's ethics, creation, well that might be science, might be theology. We tend to compartmentalise everything, whereas the wisdom writers put the whole thing together. Right, now. Just looking at it in its context and the wisdom books that I listed, like Job, Psalms, Proverbs and all the rest, there are many counterparts in the ancient Near East. And I'm just going to briefly skim through these to give you an idea of what other people out there in Egypt and Mesopotamia were writing and talking about at the time. So, for example, here's an example of the Proverbs. Now, Amenope, in the 7th and 6th century, from Egypt, wrote... Do not carry off the landmark at the boundaries of the arable land, nor disturb the position of the measuring cord. Be not greedy after a cubit of land, nor encroach upon the boundaries of a widow. And we can see this is so similar to the Israelite proverbs. And there are so many proverbs that are very similar in the Egyptian context that we also see in the Israelite context. So people were looking for ways to live their lives well. And these proverbs, these pithy sayings, to lead them in a good life. So that's one example. Then we've got Ecclesiastes, which is the book that we're looking at at the moment. And there are parallels to the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible um, amongst some Akkadian texts. These are texts written from Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. And out of 15 texts that were looked at, it was able to discern that there's a three part structure in what they call this fictional wisdom autobiography. Okay. First of all, you've got a first person introduction. Okay, then, and we see that in Ecclesiastes. And these are often written years or centuries after the first person speaker in them. Okay, that's why they're fictional. So the person that's doing the speaking is not actually the person <coughs> that's written it. Okay, then there's usually a personal narration recounting deeds in these books. And again, you see that in Ecclesiastes. And then there's usually an ending, and it can be one of any four of these endings. And the way that Ecclesiastes fall, it's these admonitions and instructions. Okay, And we see that at the end from chapter six onwards. But the interesting thing about Ecclesiastes is it's got this framework at either end of this, first, uh, this fictional wisdom autobiography, And the question is, what's the framework doing to the actual book? And that's the question that you need to look at. It's similar, but yet it's dissimilar because of this framework. So when you're looking at it in your groups, you might want to ask yourself, what's the framework doing? And those are the three examples of um, the Ecclesiastes-type literature. Job, I've done this before, but there are many books about people that are complaining to their god saying, why am I suffering so? I wish I was dead. Then there's the Psalms. Okay, I mean, everybody's praying to a God somewhere and all following very much the same kind of stuff that you see in the Psalms. Laments, praise. There's temple hymns, praising the temples in Sumer or praising Mount Zion. There's the hymns concerning the king and there's prayer letters and all that. And then you've got Song of Songs, okay, another piece of wisdom literature with all such great titles as Papyrus Harris 500, great love songs. So breaking it down, I love you through the daytime, that's a nice little Egyptian love song, okay. Your love, dear man, is lovely to me, sounds a bit similar to Song of Songs. Love, how I'd love to slip down to the pond, yeah, that's getting a little bit off script, Okay. I love a girl, but she lives over there. Clearly written by a teenager that couldn't get a lift. I wish I were a Nubian girl. When I read this, the guide basically wishes to be the girl's servant so he can be in her chambers helping her to get dressed in the morning. Not good stuff. And if I could just be a washerman, the guide basically wants to do her laundry for her. So that does depart a little bit from what we read in the Song of Songs. Okay. Okay.
0: So that was a very brief introduction to to what wisdom (coughs) is, Uh, but what's it for? I suppose that's the the next question. Uh, Now this is roughly where we're going. This Sounds like a, this is quite a long sentence, but we're going to be—I'm going to be breaking it down in just a moment. Um, this is uh, my summary statement. What is uh, wisdom literature for? Um, it's the—the the purpose of it is to use a God-given teacher-disciple relationship. That's the first thing. Secondly, to build and shape thoughtful people uh, able to live rightly in any given real-world situation, and all of that finally is done under the fear of the Lord. So that's. What, roughly where we're going to go in this in this section but i want you to see that for yourself so what i'd like you to do now uh, on on your tables is uh, turn over on the handout and you'll see um that i've uh, printed out there the first seven verses of proverbs and there are three questions there for you to have um, a look at so to read that through together and answer these questions um so what's the god-given teacher-disciple relationship here um, what should the person shaped by this teaching be able to do? And we're thinking about what they should be able to do uh, mentally with their, with their mental faculties and also be able to do practically in the world. And then finally, what's the foundation of wise knowledge and what's its opposite? And then we'll go through those um, answers um, in the rest of the session. Just have a, we haven't got very long this morning, so maybe just five minutes um, having a quick look at that. Okay, uh, I did warn you that we don't have very long this morning, so um, uh, we need to move on. Uh, so first question from those verses, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, um, fairly straightforward to start with. What, what, what is the God-given teacher-disciple relationship here? Who's, who is the teacher? Anyone? It's Solomon. Yes, that's nice and clear, isn't it, from the first verse? The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And then he goes on to explain why he's teaching these things. Okay, so it's Solomon, son of David, uh, the Lord's anointed. Um, That means he's the Messiah or the Christ. That's going to be important uh, later on. And uh, um, that's on the one hand, and then he's got his subjects. That's the people of Israel on the other. Now, later on in in Proverbs... uh, Solomon addresses the, the reader as his son, so we've got a bit of a father son relationship going on there. Um, we also get teaching from some, some other characters too, some other kings. So Hezekiah has a, has a section of Proverbs to himself. Um, and later, right towards the end of the, the book of Proverbs, the mother of King Lemuel um, does some teaching as well. So we've got, we've got a, a number of, we've got a kind of a, a mother child relationship going on there too. And the sayings of other wise people are included within the collection. And uh, so that's the first thing to say uh, to use a God given teacher disciple relationship. Um, so, what we've got here at the beginning is a, is a king, an anointed king. So, there's a king under God teaching his subjects how to live. And that's the first kind of relationship that, that we see. Uh, we might then get teachers who are again kind of under the, under the king and therefore under, under God also. Uh, teaching disciples within that context. And um, across all the families within the people of Israel, uh, we've got this parent child thing going on. And um, both mothers and fathers are involved in that. Although, interestingly, um, the emphasis in Proverbs, as elsewhere in the Bible, is on the father child relationship, you know, a teaching relationship, um, helping uh, the child to grow up under the fear of the Lord. So it's always helpful when when you're reading uh, wisdom literature to ask, who is the teacher? Uh, And you'll get slightly different answers to that question depending on which of the books you're uh, looking at. So in Proverbs, as we've seen, it's various teachers, uh, beginning with Solomon In Ecclesiastes. Um, It's the teacher or preacher who speaks throughout the book, who associates himself with Solomon uh, right at the beginning. Uh, The book of Job is somewhat different. It's an anonymous book. We don't know who the writer was. Um, That's slightly different then because it finds its authority by being placed within the the canon of the Bible. Um, But it's important that we don't know, it's important to remember or recognize that we don't know who the author of Job was uh, because it means that that when we come to the teaching of the characters within the book, we we can then remember that it doesn't necessarily carry uh, divine approval. We have to work that out for ourselves as we're reading uh, the story. Now this is a useful thing to, to get in mind and you'll see later when we come back to it that it's useful to establish these relationships uh, when it comes to thinking about this, all this from a Christian perspective. Right, second question. So that was the first question. Second question, what should the person shaped by this teaching be able to do? And we're thinking about what they should be able to do with their brains and uh, also what they should be doing in terms of, in terms of practical living. So I guess was most, this is where most of the material of the... Of the verses was concentrated. Any quick thoughts about that? Just think about what they should be uh, able to do with their brains, having been instructed uh, by Solomon. Any quick answers to that? What should they be able to do? Okay, so they, they should uh, they should have understanding to make wise choices. Uh, So the wise choices are the practical bit. So we've got both those things together there. The understanding on the one side and then the wise choices on the other. Um, Anything to add to that? Or expand that? Listen. Listen, They should be able to listen, absolutely. Um, And apply the knowledge. Yep, yep, yep. So it's not just about, we'll see, see this in a moment, it's not just about accumulating the knowledge, it's about being able to apply it. Uh, correctly, uh, pass it on to others and teach. Um, where are you getting that from? Verse four. Uh, yeah, or that could be the the, the 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 proverbs are for teaching shrewdness. But yeah, no, sure, that's right. It could be for passing that on as well. Yeah. Um, Certainly, we've got the kind of learning and um, understanding stuff on the one on the one hand. You know, being able to engage with the sayings of the wise, this kind of literature, and make sense of it. Um, so it's not, but make sense of it in a practical kind of way. Uh, so the result that should then be righteous people, um, persons of integrity, just people, shrewd, uh, discerning, uh, those kinds of things. That's what these uh, verses um, help us to see. So first, the the mental side of that, the kind of brain side of that, if you like, uh, to build and shape thoughtful people. Um, So understanding the sayings and teachings of the wise, being able to apply them rightly. um, That's certainly very true of uh, the book of Proverbs, uh, but also not misapplying them. There's lots about misapplying wisdom in the book of Job. Uh, Also, uh, recognizing the limitations of wisdom, what wisdom cannot achieve. And uh, we'll get lots of that from Ecclesiastes. So building and shaping thoughtful people, uh, but thoughtful people able to live rightly in any given world, uh, a real-world situation. Now, as we already picked up, and, and Rich has already mentioned, this means that uh, wisdom is not merely abstract thinking. Yeah, so we might have a, an idea that comes into our mind when we hear the word wisdom, thinking of it as a, a kind of abstract or conceptual thinking, uh, this kind of thinking. Uh, but actually, the biblical wisdom literature is very much practical wisdom. It's about wisdom that's good uh, for helping people uh, to live rightly. It's different from other kinds of biblical instruction. That's worth pointing out as well. It's not just. It's not really about rules, much more about character. Now, it's not that rules are unimportant. Unimportant, and it's interesting, Proverbs chapter 10, uh, verse 8, for example, the wise in heart accept commands, but a chattering fool comes to ruin. However, the, the basic way that the, the, the Proverbs are set up, especially, is a, a focus on good character. So things that you could have put as a rule are actually expressed in de- about, all about developing uh, good character. And the thing about good character is that you don't have to have an exhaustive set of, set of rules to give every possible permutation of what might happen in a given situation. A good character should be able to behave rightly in, in any given situation. Okay, that's the idea. That's what Proverbs is trying to build up. Good character. Um, you don't necessarily have to look old and wizened like that. Um, but you get the idea. Good character is what it's all about. Right, in the real world, that's the other thing. Um, An ordered, created world. That's uh, very much a strong theme in the book of Proverbs, but it's implied throughout. Um, However, an ordered, created world in which there are fools. Uh, Fools, in the book of uh, Proverbs, are uh, people who do not recognize that they live in a created world. They do not recognize the creator, but we have to live in a world alongside this foolishness. Uh, not get sucked into it or diverted by it, uh, but also be able to cope with it when we come across it. Uh, So wisdom is all part of that. Um, A world in which there's suffering, suffering that we can't make sense of very often, and the book of Job addresses that issue. And finally, a world uh, under the shadow of death, and we'll see that that's a big idea in the book of Ecclesiastes. Death being the thing which... uh, renders all our works and wisdom um, in the end uh, meaningless like vapour Okay, so good kind of questions to ask as you're reading this kind of literature how does what I'm reading here uh, build a thoughtful godly character how does it work to produce that how is the brokenness of the world relevant here Yeah, so we are talking about wisdom within an order created world but also a broken world and that's going to be an important factor, uh, then to what kind of real situations does this apply and when does it not? So as Rich was mentioning, a timing, the timing of when it applies is also very significant. Uh, and then finally, how does this help us to behave in such situations? Okay, so the last question I asked you was this from Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1-7. to seven, What's the foundation of wise knowledge? And what is its opposite? Um, So again, relatively straightforward. What's the foundation of knowledge? The fear of the Lord. Thank you. Um, Its opposite, uh, interestingly, from that same verse, is foolishness, uh, despising wisdom and teaching. Hence, I guess, implied with that, in the end, despising the Lord from, from whom this wisdom and teaching uh, comes that helps us to pin down a little bit what fear of the Lord might be um, but what I think we find is that each of the wisdom books will contribute to our understanding of what the fear of the Lord is really all about uh, so here 's some examples so from Proverbs for example proverbs eight chapter uh, eight thirteen to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, perverse speech, says the Lord. In other words, fearing the Lord involves a deep humility before him, uh, behaving according to his will, and uh, speaking the truth about him and the truth that comes from him out into the world. So that's what it means to fear the Lord according to the book of Proverbs. There's more 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 than that, of course, but that's uh, one aspect of it. Uh, Job is interesting because... There seems to be uh, something missing in Job's fear of the Lord for much of the book, and when Job has to confront the Lord at the end of the book, uh, this is one of the things that the Lord says to him: uh, "Will the one who contends with the Almighty Creator correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer." In other words, there's been, if you like, a deficiency of uh, in Job of his understanding of the fear of the Lord as, as Creator. And um, that the, the final chapters of Job are very much focused on uh, the Lord as creator. Uh, or Ecclesiastes. Uh, there we go. Ecclesiastes, this is how the book ends. Uh, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. So fearing the Lord there, very much about fearing the Lord, who will expose things, expose what we have done, and uh, finally judge the whole world. Okay, so that was a little on uh, the purpose of biblical wisdom, but how does it do that? How does wisdom work?
1: How does, how does wisdom work? Now, again, we're looking at these particular books in the um, Old Testament and looking and seeing how the actual genre, how the structure, there's just so much text on the page, how are we to read it? Now, one of the elements that we find in all of these books is the use of foils. That is one or more characters that are used to compare and contrast (coughs) with another character. And, for example, say in the book of Ruth, you've got the um, unnamed near kingsman redeemer. He's used as a foil with Boaz. And Oprah, she is a foil for Ruth, where you see Oprah does the thing that most people would do, clear off back to Moab, and Ruth does the extra thing. She goes, the extra mile. These are foils. These are people that you're supposed to think do I identify with this person or that? And we see that in the wisdom books. So, for example, in the book of Job, we have Job's comforters. And they all have something to say. And sometimes what they say might sound right almost. And I think it's, it's Michael Card in his, his famous lyrics on the, the, um, the book said, you know, their words and their doctrine, they all sound so true. The problem is, Lord, they are all wrong about you. And so you've got these people saying things about why Job is suffering, okay? But these are foils. These are things that you think, I might agree with that. That sounds right. But then you're thinking, but is it right? Okay? And Elihu is rather an enigmatic character in the book of Job. Okay? We're not quite sure. Should we agree with him? Shouldn't we agree with him? And it's supposed to get you thinking, okay, about what's being asked in the book. This is, this, is quite, this is easier to see in the book of Proverbs, where you've got Lady Wisdom, who is beckoning people to come and learn from her, and you've got Lady Folly, who's kind of set in the, the role of a prostitute, who says, anybody that's dim of wits, come into my house. You know, Water drunk in secret is great. Okay. So you see these two you know, being compared and contrasted, and you have to make a decision. Are you going to follow Lady Wisdom or Lady Folly? Again, in the Song of Songs, you've got the Daughters of Jerusalem. And the Shulamite is often sort of like telling them and adjuring them, you know, do not awaken love until it so desires. Okay, so you've got this compare and contrast. You also see it in the Psalms. (laughs) You've got the man of righteousness compared with the man of unrighteousness. Okay, and you think, yeah, and if that offends anybody's political sensibilities, you can feel better about yourselves. And then in Ecclesiastes, you've got Kohelet, the preacher or the teacher, as it says in the NIV, who takes up the major bulk of the book and what he's saying, which sounds like the lyrics to a Leveller's song. Okay? But you've got the frame narrator, the father to the son, just at the very beginning and just at the very end. Okay, and... And we should be, be comparing what Kohelet's saying with what the frame narrator is saying. And i leave that with you as a question. So then, also, the wisdom literature is, is written in a particular way. It's poetry. And I apologise to anybody that's an English literature lecturer or teacher, but I'm going to dabble into the world of poetry and try and bring out your more literary side, your artistic nature. So how do we define what the difference is between poetry and prose? Well, there's certain elements in poetry like parallelism, imagery, rhymes, word plays and things like that. And a greater use of that would tend to push it towards poetry. And it's as basic as that. OK, there are elements of parallelism and imagery in prose as well. Now, there's a particular element. It's called terseness, which means it's not very long. Okay. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people He chose for His inheritance. Short, pithy, punchy, and to the point. Okay, then there are two clauses. You might sometimes see this in the commentary where it talks about bi-colons or tri-colons. It's just a fancy way for saying it. it's got two clauses or three clauses in it. There's a verb. Blessed is the nation, but the verb doesn't appear in the second verse in the second clause. You have to supply that. Okay? You think, oh yeah. I mean, which I think you automatically did when you read it. You supplied. And sometimes it might be a noun. Okay. But there's often, with this terseness, this shortness, there's a lack of conjunctions, such as and, but, or or. Okay, then. Temporal markers tend to be missing. Okay? Logical markers, therefore or thus, and causal markers, because of, and stuff like that. So these things tend to be missing. It's very punchy and just there. And that raises an intentional ambiguity. You have to think a little bit about what is being said here to get to the bottom of it. And that is what the writers, the poet, the wisdom writer, wanted you to do. He wants you to think about it. Then we get parallelism. Okay, then, the earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof. The world and all those who dwell in it. Okay, and and we see this. So often, what is stated in the first clause is then stated again in the second clause. And it's what Kugel calls A and what's more B. So it it builds on and emphasises that thing. It's not saying two different things. It's saying the same thing, but building and emphasising it. And as I've pointed out here... It can either reinforce it, it can compare it, or it can contrast it. Then you've got imagery. Okay, In the Song of Songs, there's a lots of weird imagery. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Now, am I to take that figuratively or literally? Does my wife look like a purple flower on the green stem? Or am I supposed to think, She looks beautiful in her natural state and smells rather nice. Yeah, she's out of the room at the moment. (laughs) But there you go. It's it's figurative, it's not literal. If you go around sort of thinking that the woman has got a neck that looks like the Tower of David, you're going to get some pretty weird ideas. You have to think about these things. You have to sit, meditate on them a bit. OK, so we get what we call metaphors, OK? and there's, there's a perceptual metaphor, and these are based on the senses. And examples such as, May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting of my hands be like an evening sacrifice. It appeals to the senses of the smell. The next one, to the senses of hearing. The crackling of the thorns. Your navel is, round, is a rounded goblet and never lacks blended wine. It appeals to the senses of the taste. It gets you sort of thinking, it gets all the emotions involved in what is being said. And then there's these pragmatic metaphors, and an example of that would be: Woe to the Assyrians, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. Okay, so it's comparing the Assyrians to a big cudgel that the Lord is using to beat his people with. It's not to be taken literally. Okay, the Assyrians aren't literally one big wooden club. Okay, then. And all these things. It's it's figurative language. It's to get you thinking. So the function. Okay, as I've said, it lacks the precision of literal language. Okay, you have to sit and you have to think about it. There's not necessarily one right answer to what it means. And sometimes that makes us feel a bit uncomfortable as evangelicals who like to have a nice systematic theology, with it all banged down, this is what this passage means. It can mean a number of things. It's to get you thinking, it's to get the whole emotions, you know, the whole of you going, not just your grey matter. The similarity in these metaphors is unstated or hidden. You have to meditate on it. You're not quite sure, what does he mean about this goblet of wine? I wonder what it tastes like thinking, meditating on these things it increases the vividness of the picture for example in the book of Job there's a lot of Canaanite imagery and I talked about this a few years ago when I did an overview on Job okay, the terrors the Pahadim, okay then that it talks about in Job 15 these are like these horrible little creatures that people thought lived in their closets, these are those kind of terrors and you've got this idea, you know, your kids worry about the goblins in the closet. You know, it's, it's giving you these vivid pictures. And Leviathan, another more famous and noteworthy thing, battling with Leviathan, okay, is a way of sort of grappling with the, the, the problems when your skin is breaking out in boils and your house has collapsed and your children have all died. You're wrestling with Leviathan. It makes it that much more vivid, It's clear and memorable. You know, we can remember much more easily poetry that we've learnt with its rhyme and its rhythm and its metre than we can sort of great big long passages. So, for example, in advance to committing yourself to a course of action, you should consider your circumstances and options. That makes it sound very, you know, sound advice. But it's easier if I just say, look before you leap. You remember that. Now, what does it mean, look before you leap? Is he, am I just talking about you jumping about from one place to another? Is it got anything to do with leaping? Or is there something more metaphorical going on, such as saying, think about what you're going to do before you do it? Okay? Not to be taken literally. You know, you have to think about how you're going to apply that bit of advice. As I said, it's emotionally charged. It gets all the senses going, gets you thinking, all right? And it brings attention to old truths in new ways. Now, the Old Testament prophets were very good at this. When they're talking about God tearing up a vineyard and kicking down the walls, and that kind of imagery, it kind of brings it home to Israel, what is about to happen to it, because of its unfaithful, sinful nature. And the parables, again, are extended metaphors. By using these parables, you can all remember the parables, and then from that you then think, what's Jesus' message? What's he getting across here? Thank you.
0: So I hope that's giving you a, a little bit of a taste of what uh, wisdom literature is all about in its original context, you know, how it's supposed to, to work for, the, for the, the people of Israel under their king um, in, in the land. Uh, but that's all very well and good, you might be saying. What has that got to do with me and especially with me as a Christian and us as Christians today? So that's the final thing that we're going to be thinking about uh, this morning. Now, uh, Uh, You may have come across uh, this idea, uh, which is called uh, a biblical timeline tool. So I hope you can see it's relatively simple. What you do is you draw a a line sort of representing history um, across here, and in the middle you've got the death and resurrection of Jesus, or the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we might say. And uh, you put um, wherever uh, the particular book of the Bible uh, you're looking at was written, uh, you make a little mark uh, where that was, so you can see that here, that's the, uh, the Old Testament wisdom literature, Sort of written around this kind of period, beginning with Solomon and sort of stretching on uh, perhaps beyond the exile. And then you put another marker uh, where we are, which is all the way over here, after the New Testament has been uh, written. And you put uh, one finger on uh, where the book is set, and then one finger on where we are. And you factor in or think about what happens in between and the difference that it makes to the book that you're reading. So that's good practice of any book of the Bible Um, that you're looking at. Now, what happens when we do that with the wisdom literature? So how does the life, death and resurrection of Jesus change what we read in the wisdom literature? How does the New Testament change what is written in the wisdom literature? Well, we might say that uh, in some ways um, some of the important things don't change after all, you see, we, we still live in the same creation. We said that wisdom is all about living within an order-created um, uh, uh, setting uh, or created world. Uh, we live in the same world, so a lot of the things that are said in the wisdom literature are going to carry out over um, to us too. We still have to cope with suffering that we can't make sense of, much as Job did. It might be a, for different reasons. We might be able to put a different spin on it, but still we're going to have to face suffering that we can't make sense of. Our lives are still restricted by the reality of death, uh, which is what we have to face up in the book of Ecclesiastes. So the gospel changes things, as I'll say in a moment, but there's still that limitation on what we can achieve um, in our lives. So a lot of these things are actually going to carry over. And it's interesting when you turn to the New Testament, you find, as Rich was mentioning earlier, um, the letter of uh, James, which is pretty much straightforward Um, Jewish wisdom literature, but now in a a New Testament context. So that's, if you like, confirmation that a lot of these ideas just sort of pass over into the new era. era. Well, having said all that, as we're reading the wisdom literature, we should be picking up that there are some severe uh, limitations to it. So, uh, for example, if you're reading the book of Proverbs, um, you'll uh, very quickly pick up the fact that a lot of this depends upon, as we were talking earlier, about the relationship between the, 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 the person who's teaching you and us as, as learners. Now, the person who's teaching us is the, is the king. It's, it, it's Solomon. What we discover, though, uh, from the histories um, in the Old Testament is the failure of Solomon. Solomon may have been great at one point. He may have had great wisdom, but he turned to idolatry and um, collapsed as a... Uh, as a leader, it's very distressing when that happens, isn't it? Like you might have gone through this experience of of, of having a, a teacher that you once admired, and then the teacher does something terrible, and that does, you know, your world can collapse in that kind of situation, and it puts, it compromises the teaching that you've heard. So that failure has compromised, in some in some sense, the teaching that we've heard uh, from Solomon. So there's a danger there, and in fact, the book of Proverbs ends by talking about the failure of kings. That's one of the interesting things in the final couple of chapters. Um, there are, is, we, when you're reading the book of Job, uh, there are all sorts of things about the relationships between faith and suffering and justice um, that are very difficult to reconcile and, in fact, aren't really reconciled within the, within the book. And then, finally, the problem of death, of course, which is uh, there in Ecclesiastes. And one of the, one of the big... Emphasis in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes is is that wisdom is not capable of solving this problem. Wisdom is not capable of solving this problem. Okay, so as we're reading the the Old Testament wisdom literature, we're recognizing that it does have limitations. Once we then come back to, if we come back to the biblical timeline and think about the difference that Jesus Christ makes, what we find is that many of those limitations are then dealt with. So, for example... Listen to this from Matthew's Gospel. This is what Jesus says. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you, take up my yoke and, look at this, learn from me, uh, because I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Elsewhere, uh, just in the next chapter, in fact, Jesus says, one greater than Solomon is In other words, so Jesus Christ has come to address that problem of the teacher-disciple relationship and uh, restore it uh, properly. Or look at this, this is from 1 Corinthians, uh, the Apostle Paul, but it's from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became God-given wisdom for us, our righteousness, our sanctification and redemption. In order that, as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. Now this is interesting, isn't it? You might remember from the big, those opening verses in, in Proverbs, what Proverbs was, the Proverbs were intended to do to people. They were intended to bring about righteousness, uh, good character. Those things uh, can, can all now be ours in Jesus Christ. In other words... Um, these things are happening. The person of Jesus Christ changes the teacher-disciple relationship for good. It was compromised in the Old Testament. Now it's restored. Uh, not just because Jesus is a better teacher or a greater teacher, although that, that is true, but also because the, 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 the nature of the relationship is very different. Uh, we're incorporated into what Jesus does in a way that we're never. the people of Israel were never incorporated or connected to um, that they're the, the kings. In other words, we don't just follow after um, uh, Jesus, our teacher, from a distance, sort of absorbing knowledge from him. We're uh, actually incorporated into him by faith. Um, it's that kind of uh, depth of association. Uh, the work of Jesus Christ, all these issues that we might have had from Job about how we reconcile faith and suffering and justice, well, Jesus Christ does all of those things for us. He is the supreme example of trust and faith in his Heavenly Father. He goes through the suffering, and in the end there is justice he is vindicated. And as we are, uh, are, again, are incorporated into him uh, by faith, uh, we become a part of those things, and in him all those things start to uh, make sense for us. And of course, finally, the Gospel of Jesus Christ solves the problem of death. So although there are still limitations on what we're able to achieve here and now because of death, In the end, the resurrection means that our work is not going to be in vain. Now, it's a bit like, I guess, what's happening here. So we've got this Old Testament wisdom literature, which is all very wonderful, as we've been saying, but flawed or incomplete in some way. Uh, What uh, Jesus Christ does then, it's a bit like uh, um, putting it into a new package, a new framework, like refurbishing some old favourite possession with new and better parts so that something that, worked, that uh, we loved but didn't work, uh, we can now love and it does work in him. These things allow us to repackage the wisdom literature into a person and into a context where they actually work, where they will actually help us uh, to persevere and, um, in the Christian life. All of which will help us to, to delight in the Lord as we should do. Uh, fearing the Lord as we should do, keeping on the path of wisdom, uh, which is now a path which on which we walk in Christ, uh, keeping on that path and away from the path of folly, away from the path of destruction. Good, well I think we've almost uh, run out of time, we do actually have a, a few minutes for questions to so I'll pray in a moment uh, and then we'll have some coffee. But we've actually got some, a couple of minutes for a some questions, which I'll get Rich to answer probably. <laughs> yes, Jim. You in the uh, the No, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> um, it, it, if we didn't have the New Testament... We might be led to think that. But Jesus Christ coming along and fulfilling everything that Solomon was all about restores the, its position, if you like, and restores its authority. And we know that uh, everything that Solomon said now becomes greater and fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, So we can, we can take it seriously. So long as we're doing all these things about thinking about... Um, so we take the... In- You know, the the particular teaching, we don't take it on its own. It's not right just on its own. We've got to do this process of thinking about the difference that Jesus, the gospel makes before we can um, live wisely today. Anything else? Great. That's all sorted then. Uh, We're going to have coffee in just a moment. uh, Before we do that... Oh, just oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, Uh, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for uh, this wonderful part of the Bible. We thank you for these particular books of wisdom, but also the way that wisdom pervades across the Scriptures. Uh, We thank you that it is good for us, uh, that it is a blessing for us, that it helps us to live uh, thoughtfully and uh, rightly in the real world. And uh, as we walk with uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that in this coming term, uh, you would change us through these books, and um, particularly the book of Ecclesiastes. And we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.